0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth. My name is Sarab Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we've got another great episode for you today. Uh, normally, I'd use this moment to plug the Fellowship for American Statecraft, but guess what? You can't apply for it anymore. Very sorry to tell you. Honestly, I just wanted to say that, you know, we've gotten hundreds of applications. It has been absolutely humbling. And I was having some phone calls with other... Uh, leaders in the conservative movement uh, a couple of days ago just telling me what the ratio for these sorts of things typically are in terms of applications versus spots available. And without giving away too many details, I think we've blown away every single other fellowship on the right by like. 2X. It's absolutely crazy. Um, We are incredibly grateful to all the young people who applied. Stay tuned pretty soon if you did for updates on your application. Um, But we still have other stuff going. We're not one trick ponies here. Uh, The next thing that we're going to be plugging every episode is Summit, a conference on American statecraft. Now, that's still a little bit up in the air because we're nailing down what the dates that we're going to do it are on. But Keep an eye out for when those are announced. It's going to be in the early fall. But in the meantime, you can sign up on the interest form. That'll make sure that we know to reach out to you when the full application goes live. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. We've already started having preliminary conversations with some of the people that we're going to have to speak at Summit. It's going to be a conference like no other, where we are forthrightly and single-mindedly advocating for everything that this this quote-unquote new right believes. So we really hope that you'll participate. Uh, Nick, how have you been feeling in general lately? That is a. That's a very broad question. Just how have you been feeling? <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I don't know. Life is good. I'm sleeping good at night. Uh, getting a lot of work done. Oh, you mean about American Moment stuff? Gotcha. Right. Um, no one cares so, about your personal life. <laughs> yeah. So fellowship applications. You know, just just on that, it's been insane. Um, like I wake up in the morning, and there are some of you, and yes, I know who you are, who have been filling out these applications at like three in the morning because I'll I'll like. I go to bed pretty early. You know, I'm kind of a boomer in that way. I go to bed at 10, and I wake up in the morning, and they're like last night. I, I woke up to seven, I think, new fellowship applications this morning, and they're coming in at like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. I'm like, dang, yeah. people like really are, are, are staying up late, I guess, thinking about their application or, or working on it. So, um, really, it's been a ton of yeah. very impressive applications. I'm very happy with it. And and yeah, I'm starting to have you know a lot of these um, these meetings about about summit. You know, talking to venues um, and vendors and speakers, and it's just I'm getting so excited. This is going to be a conference like no other. Um, to echo what Rob said, make sure you fill out the uh, conference interest form on our website, and we're looking we're looking forward to giving you some more details. We're gonna keep it under wraps for now, but it's exciting.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. You know, maybe the ones that are coming in at 2 and 3 a.m. are just Chinese spies that are paying attention to what we're doing. We don't know. Uh, but regardless, uh, please check out AmericanMoment.org to find more. I'm also going to ask you guys to like and subscribe and rate uh, this podcast, Five Stars. It really helps us boost up in the rankings. I'll be honest, I had no idea how many of you were listening to this until we popped the hood yesterday, and I just kind of offhandedly asked. Um it's a lot more than I thought. Um, so, so if all of you uh, subscribed and and liked the podcast and rated it five stars, it would boost us to probably being on the leaderboards uh, of of some of the categories on places like Apple Podcasts. So please make sure you do that. Um, if you don't like it, then uh, please forget I said anything. Um, We're really excited for the episode that we did today with Josh Hammer. For those of you who don't know, Josh, in addition to being one of our uh, first board of advisors members at American Moment, is the opinion editor at Newsweek. Uh, Josh is one of the most prolific people I know, so I always have to make sure I have his bio front hand because he's always doing so much. But in addition to his work at Newsweek, he is a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation. You may know them for putting on the National Conservatism Conference that happened a couple of years ago. Yoram Hazoni leads that up. We're big fans of the work that they do. And he's also a policy advisor for the Internet Accountability Project, which is one of the premier organizations holding the big technology conglomerates that dominate so many of our lives to account. He writes everywhere, all the time forever. He's one of the most prolific and energetic writers I know, so please check out some of the stuff he's written. A lot of it is on AmCannon. But we had a fantastic episode where we talked about everything from the uh, libertarian takeover of the conservative legal movement to uh, what conservatives need to do with regards to abortion policy, to uh, criminal justice reform and some of the concerns he has, uh, and more broadly, the idea of common good originalism, which Josh has been integral in pioneering on the right and has gotten quite a bit of attention. In fact, he's in D.C. precisely to debate with some other legal scholars about the merits of his worldview. So I don't know how you thought about the episode, Nick, but I thought it was fantastic.
1: Yeah, it was great. Uh, you know, similar to our last um, episode with with Arthur Millick, uh, w- you know, we, we talked a lot about basically how to use state power to, um, you know, it kind of ensure that the, the The common good and the american way of life um and i'm really enjoying a lot of these conversations that are that we're having on the right about this um you know it's something that the left has been using for you know at least two or three decades or you know some would argue back to the new deal um several millennia yeah yeah it's been you know it's been it's been something they've been doing for a while and 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 seeing you know the right and and you know legal scholars and leaders like josh um, advocate for this sort of position uh, is fantastic. I'm really encouraged by it. And this is a, this is a fascinating conversation that we had
0: today. Likewise. Uh, and so without further ado, let's go to Josh. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. It's great to be with you guys. So the one thing we like to always do with our guests when we have them on is have them explain how on earth they got here. Can you just walk our guests through the path that got you to the point where you're now editor at Newsweek and doing all the other stuff that you do now?
2: Yes. I mean, there's really no straightforward answer to this. I mean, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by training. I went to university. I'm so sorry. Uh, I, 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 too, am sorry about that. I am not using my law degree in much capacity right now. To the listeners, I would say probably do not go to law school. Not a good idea. Uh practice for a big law firm for 15 or 16 months. Wasn't really for me. Got very fortunate. Uh, Judge Jim Ho on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, one of uh, President Trump's first two nominees to that court, took a total flyer on me. Um, we kind of knew each other through Chicago stuff, through Ted Cruz stuff. Clerk for Jim, basically decided, didn't want to go back to the law. Um, was kind of friends with Ben Shapiro. Daily Wire created this editor-a-large title for me was briefly practicing law on the side for First Liberty Institute. Wonderful folks. You know, Saurabh, you and I both know them, of course, down in Texas. So I was kind of doing that for a little while. Um, Did that for a little over a year. And uh, long story short, I kind of found out through the grapevine um, that Newsweek of all places was kind of run by like woke, skeptical, anti-woke people. and was looking to kind of rebrand their opinion section along those lines. So I uh, a right-wing nutjob like me somehow ended up running the opinion section at a "quote unquote" mainstream media organization. So here we are. It's pretty crazy.
0: That's awesome. And uh, just rewinding a little bit before you went to law school, um, I remember I first heard about you through mutual friends because you uh, had, you know, decamped to Iowa or some other state for the winter to block walk for Senator Cruz when he was running for president. What did you do? You know, kind of how did you get involved in politics to begin with before you went to law school?
2: sure so i mean uh you know we're recording this in dc i mean i lived in dc for a little bit between college and law school for two years i was doing something totally non-political I was working for a tiny very beltway-esque economic consulting firm um but when i quit that to kind of focus on my lsat studying i actually was interning for uh ethics and public policy center on the side so that's kind of my very first foray um towards the end of my first year of law school i ended up working for mike lee my first year of law school summer on senate judiciary committee And this is the summer of 2014. So there were two big things that were happening that summer that kind of just like enraptured me and I was truly focused on. So the listeners will recall 2014 was the first big UAC crisis on the southern border. It was the first big like, uh, you know, Northern Triangle. UAC unaccompanied. Unaccompanied alien children. Yeah. So I was on the San Judiciary Committee. That was in our jurisdiction. I was writing lots of memos on that. I was like really enraged by what I was seeing happening down there. It was also um, outside Judiciary committee, but still something that I care a lot about. It was also the most recent Israel-Hamas war. So these two things kind of just like really got me glued to the news. And I was trying to vent on Twitter, but like that wasn't enough. So I was friendly already at that point with Eric Erickson. I reached out to Eric. It was like, I need to like get my feelings out there. So he was like, of course, we'll have you on Red State. I wrote a Red State post. Uh, I still remember what it was called, uh, Why We Fight. Um, It was a very emotionally fraught post. And that was kind of my first foray into the blogosphere. I blogged a little bit on and off throughout the rest of law school, even at the law firm, which was totally unsustainable. I mean, it was basically my way of saying I have no intention of making partner at the law firm. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, and look, Senator Cruz, I got to know a little bit. Um, I don't even remember how, honestly. I guess I initially working for Mike Lee um, you know, it's funny when I was working for Mike Lee, I mean, you know, a lot of my colleagues in office were like, obviously Mormons, right? And I, I love the Mormons. Like literally, I, I, I freaking love them are the greatest Americans as far as I'm concerned, period, way better than my fellow Jews in so many respects. But <laughs> the problem with working with Mormons is if you want to do a Capitol Hill happy hour, they're not the best people to do that with. So I kind of had to find <laughs> other people to go get the happy hours with, ended up doing those with the cruise boys. And, um, yeah, yeah, they're heavy yeah. drinkers. I know a lot of people on their staff.
1: <laughs> so... What exactly can you do with the Mormons? Because you can't, you can't do a happy hour, but you also like can't grab coffee. Like, do you do you just go to like, you know, teaism or like wh- wh- where do no, you go? No, it's
2: caffeinated
0: drink. You can't do that either.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I rem- literally, I remember <laughs> before I worked for Mike Lee, one of my good friends from University of Chicago Law School, a guy named Adam Decker is uh, Mormon, and I said to Adam, I said, um, you know, uh, are people going to be offended if I drink with this like massive like iced coffee in the morning? <laughs> And he laughs at me, or he looks at me. He laughs and says, "I think you're probably okay on on those grounds. I would recommend against viewing pornography in the office." And I, I said, <laughs> "Okay, I, I think we're okay." <laughs> that's, that's a good rule. That's a good rule for sure. Um, so that that that's that's a
0: great story that got you here, and I think it shows that uh, a lot of our audience, you know, they may be considering law school and stuff. You don't need that in order to get involved, and that's something I love to beat into their brains as rapidly as possible. But. Um, The law does matter. And there's a lot of very profound debates going on right now on the right, like there are on most political issues, on the nature of how the right approaches the law. You know, the dominant perspective for the past 30 years or so on the right has been that we're going to focus on originalism, which, you know, that we follow the text of the Constitution with the framers intent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You have made a name for yourself in some ways breaking from the mainstream on this. Why don't you outline in in uh you know concise terms what it is that that you find lacking in the the prevailing strain of originalist thought that exists in the right and and why it's needed.
2: Sure, yes. Yeah. So this is kind of like my like current big project that I'm working on a lot. Obviously, it's actually literally why I'm here in, in DC of course is to debate uh my friend Ed Weilan on this very topic. So Originalism has become kind of like the dominant strain of legal thought on the right for, you know, the past 30, 40 years now. Um, the Federalist Society was founded in 1982, um, the kind of like the leading lights back when it was founded. People like Antonin Scalia, uh, the late Judge Bob Bork, uh, Attorney General Ed Meese. Um, the first strand of originalism, those, those kind of luminaries, uh, were all politically conservative figures, but their approach to jurisprudence was very heavy on judicial restraint. Um, because at the time and place you got to remember here it was a direct response to the excesses of the Warren Court, of the Burger Court, Roe v. Wade, the you know the the criminal procedure cases, Miranda versus Arizona. It's like your Miranda rights, all this nonsense basically. So there, it was a heavy emphasis on judicial restraint, and to that end, what they emphasized um, was what we would call legal positivism. They basically said that the Constitution is a strict rule of law. There's no kind of moral, natural law, anything like that kind of undergird here. Scalia famously battled uh, with Harry Jaffa of the Claremont Institute about the role that that the declaration plays or does not play in constitutional interpretation. It was was strictly amoral. That was kind of the first strand of of originalist thought. Uh, We eventually kind of get two more strands that develop over the next 15, 20 years or so. One is what we might call libertarian or classical liberal originalism. Uh, Professor Randy Barnett of Georgetown is kind of affiliated with this. My old professor, Richard Epstein, is very much affiliated with this. And it's kind of encapsulated by a subtitle from one of Randy's books uh, where he calls it the presumption of liberty, which basically says that when, you were, when we're in what originalists call, uh, get a quick aside, like the construction zone, it's a nerdy term, but it literally means when it's like ambiguous, you err on the side of presuming liberty. And then, of course, there's uh, this newest strand that's uh, a little bit of an oxymoron. They call it progressive originalism, which basically means that the original meaning is supposed to be elastic and to delegate to future generations to kind of update their morals. Okay, so those are kind of like the three strands of originalist thought for the past 35, 40 years. So I look at that as conservative and I say, where is the actual substantive conservative strand of thought? The first one, again, um, has, did a lot. That's kind of the, the, the Scalia school, but it's avowedly positivist. It is dedicated to the proposition that the Constitution is not a moral document at all, that there are no kind of substantive conservative values in there. On, by contrast, the latter two The libertarian position with the whole presumption of liberty is intrinsically oriented towards individual liberty, and progressive originalism, by definition, is progressive, right? So what I'm trying to do with this thing that I call common good originalism is trying to introduce what I view as kind of a genuinely, intrinsically, and substantively strand of originalist thought. Um, it is still methodologically originalist. So not to get too much in the weeds, but it's a little different than Adrian Vermeule's, for example. Adrian's a good friend of mine. We talk all the time, but it's a little different as far as how it actually the mechanics of it work. Um, it's really much closer to kind of the Hamiltonian vision. Um, it's really kind of more about kind of the nationalist common good health of the whole in contrast to individual liberty maximization, which is why I'm good friends with guys like you, because I think we agree on this stuff.
0: That's right. And, you know, you, you, the, the Hamiltonian vision that you mentioned, I think, is, is specifically valid, because to me, the Constitution has to be considered in the context of what caused it to come into being, which was the failures of the Articles of Confederation. Exactly. The, the absence uh, in that previous system of the ability for a strong and cohesive national government to actually govern. Um, so this seems pretty self-evident to me. Why do you get pushback and from whom do you get pushback on the common good originalism
2: question? So it's really funny, right? Um, you know, look, I I I have a lot of friends at the Federal Society. I'm a Federal Society speaker. I was a three year board member at the University of Chicago Law School. I, I I do not disparage anyone or anyone who's affiliated with that organization. But what I will say is that I think it's quite telling that the logo of the Federal Society is a silhouette of, of James Madison. Um, and Madison was obviously one of the most brilliant statesmen. Um, but even if you t- even holding Hamilton aside, just sticking with James Madison for a second, this is this is a thing that our friend Matt Peterson at Claremont is a point he makes all the time. You can go to Madison's most famous Federalist paper, Federalist Number Ten. That's his famous discussion of faction and countermajoritarianism and all that stuff. He uses the term "public good" I think like six times in that very short essay, and then the "common good" is also used one additional time on top of "public good." Um, so the, this notion, this strand of thought that like individual liberty maximization was kind of like the be-all, end-all of founding era thought, even kind of holding aside Hamilton, the Federalist. It was just simply not the case. I mean, it's really kind of just like a a an ahistorical, anachronistic view of just Jeffersonian uh, utopianism, frankly, is what it is. So, uh, I don't really know where this started, but really, what I'm trying to do is just resuscitate this um, kind of this Hamiltonian story thought. The pushback to more directly answer your question comes. Really, I think from libertarian ink, it is, it, it, it is from like the strands of the modern conservative movement that it, that from my perspective, just become like overly liberalized, right? I mean, my friend, Delia Shapiro, we've debated this publicly uh, in Cato universe, obviously. Um, a lot of the folks affiliated with George Mason, uh, Anthony Scalia School of Law. I, again, some of these people are personal friends, but they come from like a more kind of like Koch brothers-esque libertarian perspective. That is where the pushback is, because I'm basically saying that we've er too much on the side of liberty, but there are other substantive values that it's time to kind of countervail with now at this point.
1: So <clears throat> I talked about this book, uh, on our last episode, um, it's called, uh, first principles by Thomas Ricks. Uh, it's a relatively recent book. I got it for Christmas it was great. It talks specifically about how like Greek and Roman philosophers, um, had influenced the, the, you know, basically how the founders approached like good governance. Um, And one of the most interesting things I learned in this book is that uh, the founders, like in all their papers, letters, um, mentioned virtue. I don't remember how many more times, but it was literally like the word virtue hundreds more times than the word liberty, which is kind of a very interesting thing. Looking at the modern, you know, conservative movement today, you know, you hear so frequently like the founders, you know, we must we must stay true to the founders vision and it's like it seems to me like the founders vision was pretty clear you know that that you know the common good and virtue was to be put you know sometimes above liberty like sometimes the 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 common good of our nation is is more important than you know the freedom to do whatever you want
2: oh, without question i mean like writings on this totally pervade the founding era as as, as you are aptly proceeding i mean george washington himself spoke about how liberty can like easily lead to licentiousness if we're not care if we're not careful i mean the founding generation of course um you know whatever you might think of them i mean the federalist party kind of supported the alien and sedition acts um you know there were prosecutions for for literal blasphemy you know as late as like the early to mid 19th century um uh, they were not free speech absolutists they they were certainly not individual liberty maximalists um, I think it's very telling, actually, if you look at it, the whole point of this common good originalism thing as I'm developing, it kind of has like, the preamble of the Constitution as its anchor. My basic claim is that in which general welfare is mentioned, yeah, in which general, <laughs> general welfare, a.k.a. the common good, literally yeah. synonyms for one another. Right. Yeah. Um, so if you look at there's seven aims of the seven substantive ends of governance of the preamble, if you actually break it down, I don't have that all memorized, but. Establish justice, promote the general welfare, common defense, domestic tranquility. And then the final one is secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. Really interesting if you actually kind of want to break that down, right? Because the inclusion of our posterity at the end is extremely Burkean. It's like literally right out of Edmund Burke. Burke famously spoke of kind of this, uh, you know, intergenerational chain of kind of like your ancestors, the present, uh, the, the future. And also linguistically here, secure the blessings of liberty, not secure liberty. Secure the blessings of liberty. The liberty is not what they're concerned with. It's what you do with that. The consequences of liberty. Yes. And, and and they also, to your point, they took a narrower view of the term liberty. Like, you know, they, obviously this, this, this David Frenchy notion, okay, of drag queen story hours, a blessing Being of Being a blessing,
1: bl- of liberty, blessing of liberty, yeah. <laughs> I mean,
2: I, I, I can't even, like, fathom how someone can think that. And, like, I, I, I know David. He's a very nice man, okay? But, like, it's, it's just hard to take that seriously. I mean, like I, the blessing of liberty. No, the blessings of liberty is like is your transcendental relationship with with God, with your creator, your relationship with your family and kind of the Tocqueville communitarian sense. Um, it, ugh, we've gotten so far removed from that, though, obviously.
0: I think that that's a great point. Um you know, one of the things that I always struggle with when we talk about the founders, and there's a lot of founders worship on the right for, I think, good reasons, because the the Constitution as a political document, I think, has served the country well and, and will continue to. Um, but one of the things that I always struggle with is the failure to recognize that the founding was not like it was not born of one man out of his brain. It was a political compromise. Like the, the Constitution was a political compromise between the people who helped ratify it. Um, and, and that's why people have favorite founding fathers and founding fathers they don't like, because some of them, like Jefferson, were much more oriented towards this this sort of runaway libertarian approach or, or the approach of permanent revolution, as opposed to people like Washington and Hamilton, who we find ourselves much more aligned with. Uh, where do you think the conversation about the founding fathers is missing on the contemporary right. And and look, I mean, I kind of understand why we elevate them because the modern left today is interested in destroying every right. element of American history. So right. I, I, I guess I'll find myself define, uh, defending Jefferson too in order to prevent them from you know tearing down statues of him. But just walk us through how we should be thinking about the founding and what it was and what it wasn't.
2: Yeah, no, fabulous question. Lots went path there, obviously. So look, we on the right tend to overstate um, the capital F, quote unquote, founders, um, insofar as what you're, what you're saying is true. They were completely competing strands of thought. You know, it's funny. I remember back in law school, my second year of law school, I took this wonderful class called the Constitution in Congress. It was all about constitutional interpretation, not at the Supreme Court, but in Congress. And we spent a lot of time kind of pouring through congressional debates from like the 1790s, from the first, you know, second, third Congress era. Uh, Of course, you know, that's what the first party system, the Jeffersonian, Madisonian Democrat Republicans versus the Hamiltonian Federalists, Um, they clashed quite strongly. Uh, You know, the listeners might want to look up. There's a famous exchange uh, that used pseudonyms, uh, the Pacificus-Helvidius exchange. It's like a very famous exchange between kind of these warring tribes. Uh, They disagreed on a lot. I mean, both domestic issues, both foreign policy issues. So the notion of like the capital F founders agreeing on everything is wildly overstated to the extent that like the American right kind of – holds that i think it's erroneous it's kind of also incidentally i think one of the shortcomings of kind of that more positivist originalism by the way right um, it's because one of the one of the, kind of the implicit assumptions i think of um the, the more positivist originalism school of thought is that there is only one right answer period and that's kind of easy to discern easy to find but that's very difficult to maintain when you look back what i was just talking about like they disagreed about themselves so we ultimately kind of have to choose a side sometimes right um look the overarching kind of the broader point here, though, is that there was not just kind of a like legal disagreement, but a genuine philosophical disagreement about what the, about what the American founding was. Um, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Thomas Paine, people like that who, uh, you know, kind of uh, the Uval Eleven kind of taxonomy we would we would call like true liberals, like earnest liberals in terms of like enlightenment, rationalist thought. They viewed uh, America as a clean kind of uh, Lockean enlightenment break from anything that had happened prior. That was vigorously contested by those like Washington, Hamilton, John Adams, um, many others as well, who basically said that we're calling it, it's a revolution fine, but it's better understood really less as a quote unquote revolution and more as a restoration of the common law rights of Englishmen, right kind of like the English Bill of Rights of 1688 that a tyrannical monarch, George III, had happened to trample over. Um, That's kind of the fundamental divide there. Um, There's a fabulous essay I'd recommend to listeners. My Edmund Burke Foundation colleague, Ophir Haivri, wrote at American Affairs a little over a year ago, February 2020, talking about kind of Edmund Burke's relationship to Hamiltonian thought and the American founding and kind of how the American Revolution was Really, much more of a genuinely capital C conservative enterprise than people realize, which of course is why Burke supported it.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I believe that that essay is actually on Amcanon. And as far as the uh, elements of of you know Dr. Hazoni's thoughts and 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 um, you know Dr. Hivory's thoughts that have been extremely influential on me, um, that. Uh, in terms of a way to approach the question of the founding has been the biggest thing, is thinking of uh, the founding of the United States not as this, you know, a priori, you know, genesis, um, it, 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 with no context, but really uh, an assertion of a particular people in a particular place, uh, drawing on what they saw as their historical birthright, which was the uh, existence of a nation that had these uh, these these principles undergirding it, uh, they just wrote them down in a more explicit way, as opposed to how it came out in England, which was through our common law tradition. Um, a little bit ago, you mentioned. Uh, that you took a class at the University of Chicago uh, on the relationship between uh, uh, Congress and the courts or something like that, or constitutional interpretation. One of the other things that that you've been very influential on me uh, over the past couple years is talking about uh, what uh, the role of the courts in constitutional interpretation should be, uh, which is not an exclusive one. Can you talk about who else should be interpreting the Constitution and, and why we shouldn't be deferring just to Black Robe judges when it comes to deciding it?
2: Yeah, you know, um, it's funny. I'd say my single biggest regret of the entire Trump presidency is that he didn't, quote unquote, pull Lincoln, that he didn't basically just stick up his two middle fingers to like a lawless court order. He could have at least started with like one of these like crazy district court, quote unquote, nationwide injunctions. Right. I mean, honestly, at the Supreme Court level, I thought the census citizenship case was the perfect time to do that. Just a rabidly farcical, like can't even make this crap up kind of decision that he really, really, really should have done then. But anyway, um, the judicial supremacy debate is a fascinating one. It's one I've spent um, a lot of time kind of poring over. Uh, it was actually my first formal piece of legal scholarship, I guess, that came out uh, last year in 2020. Um, and so, it was
0: built on your thesis from the University of Chicago. Right? Yeah, I
2: basically just adapted it straight from a paper I wrote during law school. Uh, it just took me like four years to publish it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, the debate here is um, you know, it's, it's, it's who decides, which sometimes is just as important as um, what we're deciding, right? Uh, these two questions are both very important. So- um, this debate, like so many others, does kind of go back to the founding era. Um, but the founders, from my perspective, seem to be more unified on this than they were on others. And my basic argument, which is hardly unique to me, um, Abraham Lincoln, as I just teased, is kind of like the most famous person who took who took this position, was that the courts do not have exclusive authority to interpret the Constitution. Um, they are famously what Hamilton says in Federal seventy eight. They are the least dangerous branch. More generally, kind of the Oath of Office clause in Article six of the Constitution. All constitutional actors, executive, legislative, and judicial, at both the federal and the state level, by the way, um, take an oath to, quote, support this Constitution. Um, that is an oath that means support the Constitution, not an oath to support the Constitution as a bare 5-4 black row majority have erroneously decided the Constitution. You're taking an oath to the document, not an oath to Anthony Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy's idiosyncrasies, yeah. right? Um, or the idiosyncrasies
0: of a random, you know, justice and or a, a you know district judge in Hawaii or something. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly.
2: Um, so the basic argument here, um, that I make, that others make, this is right out of um, Abraham Lincoln's response to the Dred Scott decision. Basically, is that in in Article Three, a federal court judgment is binding for the parties to the lawsuit. Um, like that is that um my my former professor Will Bode wrote a very uh great p- uh, paper called the uh, the judgment power Things is what the paper's called that is like the quote unquote judgment power going back to English common law it binds the people who are actually parties to the suit but it really does not go any further than that at that point it's kind of just prudence it's kind of just statesmanship if uh, you, you should genuinely generally respect your coordinate branches but you don't have to if it's like truly erroneous if it's truly egregious the point here is that the executive branch and senators and congressmen. By the way, senators and congressmen do this all the time. By the way, um, like with, like when Republicans try to pass these like national twenty-week abortion bans, for example, I mean is that is that is that purported to be reconcilable with with Roe and Casey? Probably not, right? I mean, so like e- even if they don't realize that they're implicitly going against these court decisions, like by, by the sheer act of legislating. So, the executive, from my perspective, um, has he, uh, his the president, the attorney general, the department of justice. They have the independent ability to interpret this thing for themselves. Um, not just the ability; they have the obligation, I would say, to interpret it for themselves.
1: Yeah, this is something that um, <clears throat> Rachel Bovard talked about on one of our first episodes. That uh, you know, members of Congress really love to delegate policy making and decision making to the judiciary. It it you know prevents them from having to make tough decisions, take hard votes, um, and I think like all we have to do is look at our society and see kind of like what a what a failure the conservative legal movement has been, you know, in relation to the courts. I mean, we've we have you know legalized ab- abortion, obviously, which um, you know, is, an, is' is an evil thing And we've been campaigning on like repealing that, preventing that for for decades and you know, not really a, a ton of movement on that. And then you have a lot of people like, basically braying about like, oh, you know, we don't like need to to um, you know, promote public decency. Like we don't need to, you know, prevent all these things. That goes against the First Amendment. It's it's I just think it's kinda like ridiculous that we've outsourced all this like policy making to the courts and the courts have also failed us. It's it, it kind of seems like at every level of like government here, when conservatives have been in charge, we've just continued to lose and continued to like make bad decisions. So now that my rant's over, (laughs) let me ask this question. Um, So, you know, like I've kind of laid out here, I just, I, I feel angry, you know, as a, as a conservative that we've lost so much. So what should we do moving forward the next six months, the next year, the next three years, the next five years, the next decade to kind of conserve um, you know our values and our legal tradition, and and how do we kind of restore the the common good to America?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, this, this is the million dollar question, obviously. So I so I purposefully am trying to do this whole common good originalism thing as a jurisprudential complement to the broader realignment that is happening. It is it, it is very uh, that that is deliberate. I'm deliberately trying to tie it, of course, to um you know the American Compass, American Affairs, Economics mm-hmm. project. It's supposed to be kind of a jurisprudence that allows um, a more kind of robust assertion of a kind of common good oriented politics. So, you know, look, I think podcasts like this, organizations like American Moments, um, uh, American Compass, all, all these groups, what we're trying to do basically is trying to get conservatives to, to do exactly what you suggest we should do, which is. Pause for a second and think about what it is we stand for as matter of first principles. Um, what it means to like actually try to conserve something. And whether that is in fact different than kind of like Lockean Jeffersonian liberalism. The answer, of course, we all know, is that it is in fact quite different. Mm-hmm. And you know, more generally, um, I was talking about this with Daniel Horowitz on his podcast earlier this week. Think about it this way, okay? Um, the people who say like like you know conserving the classical liberalism the founding. I disagree with that as a matter of what conservatism is, but even if I granted the premise of that question, that argument is still predicated upon like a polity sharing something in common with one another, sharing some sort of like rudimentary sentiment of Judeo-Christian ethics, of some kind of common notion of, of, of the good life. I mean, we we all know that famous John Adams quote, how the constitution was, you know, only made for a, a religious and moral people, what's wholly inadequate for anyone else. So even granting the premise, um, which, again, I disagree with, that uh, conservatism should just be conserving the founders' quote-unquote classical liberalism, we don't live in that country anymore. So given what has happened over the past 70, 80 years, you know, since 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 the New Deal, of course, um, uh, uh, not just the left, of course, but, you know, the over-liberalization of conservatism Inc., and things like that nature, we have to get more comfortable actually using government power. Um, you know, I recently heard um, – Senator Cruz give a give a, uh, a talk um, about how Democrats view politics as a blood sport. Republicans view it as a croquet match with cigars and sipping scotch in the front lawn. Mm. That is totally true as a matter of how we perceive it. But we have to then actually substantively get in there and do it. Not just talk about, but get, and get to be clear, this is not a shot at Senator Cruz, who I'm a huge fan of. But just in general, Republicans have to get in there and actually be willing to utilize political power to, to robustly and affirmatively and unapologetically secure the common good. You know, my buddy David Azrad, um, uh, formerly of Heritage Foundation, now at Hillsdale College uh, here in D.C., um, what a fairly uh, provocative, I thought fabulous essay for the American conservative last summer where he basically said um, – The title of it was great. Uh, I refer to it all the time. It's uh, While Rome
0: Burns, American Conservatism Fiddles.
2: Yeah, it, it was really fabulous. Um, yeah. I recently published David in, in a reparations debate for Newsweek. He's just one of my – I just love him. He's one of my absolute favorites. Um, anyway, um, in this essay, uh, David basically says – the The money line from the essay is basically says that this new, kind of newer brand of conservatism should be more comfortable using political power to uh, reward one's friends and punish one's enemies within the confines of the rule of law.
0: I
1: just want to say, you use that quote to me almost every day. Like reward <laughs> friends and punish enemies. Yeah. Like this has entered Sarab's lexicon. He uses it's it. It's such a good line, though. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And it it really answers a lot of questions too. I mean, like from this perspective, viewed through that prism, through that lens. Big tech is an enemy. Therefore, it should be reined in. It like, pretty much is like actually that simple, right? Again, like within the confines of the rule of law is doing a lot of work there. We're not advocating authoritarian lawlessness or yeah. whatever. But.
0: but it's a basic like Aristotelian conception of politics. Yes. Like that's what politics is That is, is justice.
2: For. <laughs> yeah. justice. Justice is it, it are, literally the classical conception of justice means do good to those to whom good should be done and do wrong to those mm. who deserve wrong. That is justice.
1: Yeah, yeah and I think this is just, kind of something that I've noticed too, uh, is that it seems like a lot of conservatives cling to this kind of like founders based, you know, originalism, because it doesn't seem like, you know, a lot of mainstream conservatives really seem to have a cohesive vision for, you know, what they want this country to be and what they want it to stand for and how they want the people in this country to, to live out their lives. Um, I think especially over the last 30 and 30 to 40 years, we've really clung to this idea of like, no, it must be, you know, how we how the founders wanted it initially, because we don't really have anything else to to run on. And I think that's why a lot of people are, are you know, in the conservative movement, conservative Inc, you know, as, as, as you've called it, um, are afraid of the new right, because it's, it's kind of presenting the idea that no, there are things that we should stand for. We should reward friends and punish enemies, and we should, like, you know, use the force of government to do so—to do good things for good people and to punish bad people. Yeah. Um, it, this kind of thing like makes sense to like village idiots like me, but <laughs> it's 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 funny here in D.C. like how you say that and people are like that's crazy. Why would you think of that? You know?
2: Yeah. Why would you actually use politics for the sake of? politics, right? Like what a radical conception. Um,
0: And some of it, I think, comes from a crisis of imagination. Um, And and some of it, I think, comes from a lack of vision, and you can tell these days that a lot of the old guard on the right are scared because a substantive vision, especially to the young, is always more compelling than relying on procedure alone. Yep. And one of the uh, policy areas, you know, that intersects with the law where this has been most evident is the question of abortion, which Nick brought up um, just a few minutes ago. Um, we're in the middle right now, pretty u- uh, ugly, frankly. You know, public debate going on about the question of a the pro-life movement's legal strategy and B the the substantive constitutional questions surrounding abortion. Um, can you walk us through a little bit about what that debate looks like, which side you come down on and and uh, and whether it's correct?
2: Yeah, so my my good friend Josh Craddock, uh, was a 2017 or 2018 Harvard Law graduate. I can't quite remember. Um, but you know I know Josh from uh, various circles, uh, Claremont, all that stuff, great guy. His kind of um, note that he published at the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy when he was in law school basically made the argument, and he was not the first to make this argument, to be clear, it's kind of been floating around in conservative circles for decades, that the Constitution itself, um, the, original, the authentic original public meaning of the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause in particular, um, applies to to unborn to unborn persons. So um, therefore, the equal protection of the laws necessarily entails that, like homicide laws, for example, if they're enforced to born persons, must necessarily be applied to unborn persons. Um, that is not the traditional quote unquote uh, originalist view. Um, Anthony Scalia uh, famously said uh, that uh, that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. That should be back to the state legislatures. Uh, every state will decide for its own. And. The debate that's kind of happened most recently was struck up uh, by John Finnis, uh, the very famous natural law scholar who has this uh, lengthy essay in, in First Things magazine, uh, basically kind of echoing Josh Craddock's argument. Uh, Finnis coming from a slightly more philosophical perspective, a little less of like a quote-unquote legal perspective, um, but they obviously intersect Um And the basic argument here is that the English common law uh, banned abortion after uh, what uh, William Blackstone called quickening, which is where uh, the mother would feel the unborn child kind of moving in the womb. Um, And, you know, from a strictly original standpoint, the question is what the term person meant in equal protection and whether this was actually understood, right? Um, so it's, it really has kind of spawned this very ugly exchange on Twitter. Um, Ed Whelan has kind of become kind of like the, uh, the face of uh, the Scalia argument um, that it's just a state's issue. Um, I'm actually in town uh, in D.C. to debate Ed Whelan on something very similar to that. So it's kind of funny, of course. Um, so, look, my, basic, my own two cents on this, I think it's a debatable proposition from a strictly positivist standpoint. Okay, If we're trying to just take all kind of like moral considerations out of it— and truly kind of discern what was like the most common original public meaning. I think it's probably a close call, honestly. The, the, the strongest issue or the strongest point that I think Ed makes against Josh Craddock um, is that for Josh's argument to be correct, the term person would probably have to mean something different in section one versus section two of the 14th Amendment, unless the census citizenship counting questions in section two also entail unborn children, which is possible to be clear. Um, but here's the, and here's, the, here, here's the key upshot here. Here's the key, here's the, here's the key point. This is, this, is, this is exactly where my whole common good originalism thing kicks in, is exactly in a situation like this, where reasonable people of good faith can look at the actual evidence and disagree. This is where, we, you know, in, in the so-called construction zone, where the term is ambiguous, where the telos of the regime, kind of the purpose of the American regime, ought to kick in as far as judicial constitutional interpretation is concerned. By this, of course, we, we mean the substantive aims of the declaration, of the preamble, Therefore, I think common good originalism easily supports the Josh Craddock position that um, constitutional personhood is there in the 14th Amendment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just kind of view it from the perspective that we have a moral obligation to end abortion, period. Like that. Like that is, that is the common good for those unborn persons and for the American people, boom. Yeah. So I'm in support of common good constitutionalism. It's
2: just like, look, a lot of the vitriol on Twitter has been a little... A little over the top, okay? And I I'm very friendly with people like Patrick Denine. Um we haven't met in person, but Patrick and I are very friendly over social media, whatever. Um he he probably went he probably went a little over the line, okay, as far as like his like criticisms at Ed Wheel. And I mean, like I I I don't want to get, you know, personal here, but like I I know Ed. He's a he's a very upstanding man. I he's taken shots in me. I think sometimes he's unfair, but he's authentically pro-life um as a matter of policy. He's just doing what he thinks is best as a matter of constitutional interpretation. I just happen to think that given how many unborn children have been slaughtered in the womb at this point, um, over decades and decades since Roe versus Wade, shouldn't we at least pause to reconsider that there was a, also a, a competing legitimate theory of constitutional thought that would help secure the natural and inalienable rights of these unborn children? So I don't know. That's where I come mm-hmm. down. On the backdrop
0: of this entire legal and philosophical argument is the question of whether the pro-life movement has been successful over the last 40 years. Um, do you think it has? And I mean, I, I, think, I think to put cards on the table, I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Uh, what concerns me more is, is the sort of future-proofing question, which is that on, on its own terms, the pro-life movement uh, at a legal and political level as currently construed, will only get so far it'll devolve the question back to the states and then what and frankly as someone who came up through state politics i am not confident in the ability of state-based republicans in this country to have the spine to do anything about it when the question comes up and then there's the moral question of whether any just regime would allow it what's your assessment of how successful the pro-life movement at the legal and political level has been over the last 40 years or so
2: yeah i remember talking with a the federal judge who will remain nameless about this a year and a half, two years ago we we were kind of saying let's say Roe v. Wade is overturned tomorrow. This is kind of the, our conversation, um, and let's say that it's overturned in a manner that is more to uh, you know Ed Wheel inside than Josh Craddock's side. So it's not like banned nationally, it's just back to the states. How many states tomorrow would actually? ban abortion starting, um, you know, at at conception. The answer from my perspective is fewer than 10 easily, quite possibly fewer than five. Um, There are not many states that would do this. You, You know, I mean, you have strong Texas ties. I lived in Texas for a while. There is zero chance that even Great Texas, the Lone Star, there is zero chance that Texas would just fully ban abortion tomorrow yeah. if Roe versus Wade was to right. There's no the way. The
0: NCAA may not do sports team yeah,
2: matches right. here <laughs> if we do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I mean,
0: God, I mean, we probably can't be Giant this. Silicon Valley behemoths who hate us may not move to the state, you know? Right. That
2: would be the argument that you'd hear from a lot of business-type Republicans. Right. Um. So, look, from this perspective, of course, pro-life uh, movement is only of dubious success. What I will say, though, um, in the pro-life movement's favor um, polling on abortion has remained remarkably consistent over the decades, frankly. Um, if anything, kind of the young up-and-coming generation is in many respects more pro-life based on the polling that I've seen than their parents' generation. That is really, really, really phenomenal, honestly. Um, it's actually one of only kind of the rare, um, quote-unquote, conservative issues along with gun rights that I can think of that has kind of shifted. I don't know why I say quote-unquote, like an actual conservative position along with gun rights, that have actually shifted in our favor over the past 20, 30 years. Um, Most most of these other kind of cultural issues, uh, you know, marijuana, all the LGBT stuff, it's kind of gone the total opposite direction, right? So from that perspective, um, it has been successful. I guess overall, though, my biggest criticism um, is multifold. One is that I don't think you can make a pro-life argument, especially from a more legal perspective, without coupling it with the judicial supremacy argument. Um, It's almost nonsensical, honestly, to do so, I think. Um, In in fact, I have publicly called for Roe versus Wade to be treated like Dred Scott over and over and over again, uh, effectively just ignore it as do all parties other than Roe and Wade. Um, I've written that column like five times, I feel like. Um, So from that perspective, the fact that we're not frequently making that argument is unfortunate. But as a matter of sheer public polling, you know, there's an annual March for Life. There's a lot of kind of young intellectual energy on this issue in a way that I think a lot of our other kind of cultural issues don't have. So it's successful from that perspective.
1: Well, it's crazy. Like I've lived in DC for about two and a half years and March for life is like a huge, like the national mall is full, you know, COVID aside, I think it was, I think they still did it. It was just like a little smaller this year, but I remember the first year that I was here, I mean, capital almost all the way down to the Lincoln, just like full, it was, it was, it was nuts. And it was not like you'd expect it to be a bunch of like, you know, boomers, basically. And it was like actually mostly young people right. like walking around on the hill. Like it was a bunch of like church buses, private school buses. Like it was it was crazy. I, I was honestly pretty surprised, uh you know, with with how many um young people were, were supporting the pro-life cause.
0: I think one of the reasons why it's so compelling, especially for younger people, is because I think it's one of the few issues that. As you know, hard nosed conservatives, we have the ability to tap into uh, a little bit of the progressive sentiment. You know, feeling like we are following the moral arc of history in a way that that is more consonant with the way that a lot of liberals today create their you know reward pleasure cycles than uh, than conservatives get to. I am as pro life as they humanly come, and I think that that it is truly a question of justice uh, and even social justice properly understood. Um, but one of the other issues that I think uh, conservatives have been leaning into over the past couple of years, that similarly tickles uh, that that pleasure center for them, is the question of criminal justice reform, or as you uh, sometimes cynically call it, jailbreak. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what this burgeoning movement on the right has been over the past ten to twenty years or so, how it intersects with the legal and judicial questions, and and where you you're concerned?
2: Yeah, so I, I just wrote my first piece for uh, City Journal, which is one of my favorite publications on this very topic. It was a, uh, it was titled, rec- it was entitled uh, "Recover the Moral Imperative of Law and Order" or something along those lines. So, here's my basic view of the history. Um, the 1960s was, you know, lawless anarchy is like any student of the 1960s or quasi student can tell you, like off the cuff, right? I mean, I'm I, I'm painting in broad strokes here, but that's largely true, of course. Okay, 1970s. I, I'm, I'm originally from the New York area, okay? My, my my family still lives in the New York area. The 1970s was kind of the darkest days of urban crime in New York City and many other cities. Like, you would not walk in Times Square in New York City after 7 or 8 p.m. unless you wanted to get mugged. Um, it was just a it was a total hellhole. At a national level, this started to change a little bit in the 1980s. You know, Ronald Reagan stood for a lot of things. He certainly stood for more of kind of a longer sentencing, kind of a, a more tough-on-crime approach. Attorney General Ed Meese echoed that. And then... More locally uh, in the nineteen nineties, that's kind of where Rudy Giuliani becomes mayor. Has this whole kind of broken windows policing to kind of start with like petty larceny, and uh, and it was it was wildly successful. Um, the now infamous for unclear reasons ninety four crime bill, which was signed into law by President Clinton, it, it, it like passed the House on a on a, on a voice vote and It was ninety five to four in the Senate. It was not a controversial piece of legislation. So this was kind of the, this was the bipartisan consensus was to kind of counteracts the previous decade's lawlessness, and it was phenomenally successful. Like, violent violent crime, property crimes in America plummeted over the course of decades. I think what happened was um, two things happened. In kind of the late 2000s, kind of early 2010s, the... Tough on crime segment of kind of the old Democratic Party just completely died. Um, they've been totally overrun, of course, by what we all see happening before our eyes: this intersectional kind of identity politics wing that sees kind of um, a disproportionate share of uh, people of color in prison and says, therefore, this is unjust based on like equity, based on Ibram X. Kendi, anti-racism, whatever. Therefore, let's we we need to kind of shut down prisons. At the same time, this was happening this more libertarian strand of thought um, started emerging on the right uh, you, you probably can't divorce it from kind of like the the limited government sentiment of the tea party era um you know you, you kind of have the rise of uh right on crime back in austin texas at, at texas Public policy foundation pushing a lot of uh quote unquote criminal justice reform you know and i worked for mike lee my first year of law school summer mike lee was and i think to this day is very passionate on this stuff uh, the fact that we have kind of an over-incarceration problem and the fact that the proper conservative thing to do especially from like a fiscal conservative perspective, is to kind of um, limit sentences, limit jail time, et cetera. The upshot here from my perspective is that this, this countervailing push has gone way too far now, especially with the whole kind of like George Soros uh, prosecutor project. Starting around like 2014, 2015, Soros and his like-minded allies kind of went into these cities across America, started funding these quote-unquote progressive prosecutors, these DAs and cities. The district attorney, um, Gascon is his last name, in, in Los Angeles, is now facing a recall, actually, or a possible recall for for basically just like non-enforcing the law. I, I, I was talking to someone, a, a friend of mine in New York, um, a couple of weeks ago. Wealthy guy, he lives across the street from like a Dwayne Reed or a Walmart or some pharmacy. He says that all theft, all larceny in that pharmacy will not go enforced unless it's two hundred fifty dollars or more. So what that what does that incentivize? It's incentivizing people to go take two hundred forty nine dollars of merchandise. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not hard to put this together. So. I think it's sort of. Pick up a TV for that price these days. Yeah, no, absolutely. Probably like a nice, like flat screen TV, right? So look, we're talking a lot about justice here. Um, more generally speaking, one of my biggest complaints about the American right is that we have completely abandoned the rhetoric and the pursuit of actual justice. We have ceded that terrain in its entirety to the left. They kind of come in with this whole kind of like racialized, ethnic, identity, politics, social justice thing. We need to reclaim justice. That is a much more compelling argument. To your point, it's probably why the pro-life cause is actually so successful among the younger generation, because younger people in general, I think, rally to a message of justice much more so than economic efficiency or, or procedure like or procedure, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I think that that's that's basically right. And the progressive prosecutor uh, Project uh, is is something that is truly terrifying, and and I sound like a conspiracy theorist when I talk about it sometimes because it is truly truly disturbing to see the level of lawlessness that's that's happened in in major American cities because of it. Um, I'm from Texas, uh, in Houston, uh, or I think it was Houston, maybe it was Dallas, I forget. Um, There was a very similar uh, essentially message coming out of the district attorney's office that we're not going to prosecute petty larceny. Uh, I think it was around 200, maybe 250 dollars. I think criminals are usually not completely irrational people. They're going to look at that and be like, oh, OK, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to pick me up, you know, about 240 bucks of merchandise. And it's it it seems to be a mistake. Um, and I think it goes to one of the 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 critical libertarian versus conservative divides that the right is facing right now. Um, and, and one of the things that you've been very vocal about is how it seems like the libertarians on the right are getting more and more market share every day in terms of the ability to, di- dictate, to dictate their terms on our policy agenda uh, and even in the legal movement. Uh, why do you think that's happening?
2: So I do think there's started to be signs of a pushback, right? I mean, uh, you know, I think American Moment organizations like this one, a lot of our allies are, are are starting to push back against kind of the over-liberalization of the American right. So I I, I do think a pushback is happening, Um. But yeah, look. I mean, I I have a lot of theories as why this is the case. Um, it's it, look. I mean, it's undeniable that for many years it was the case. Okay. I mean, like the Federal Society speaking circuit, for example. Um, I I do a lot of odd talks, especially because this all common good originals I think has kind of picked up steam here. But a lot of like the top speakers are like overt libertarians. Um, so there's there's no doubt about this. A few things come to mind immediately. One is kind of just like the proverbial, uh, you know, cocktail party argument, right? I mean, like it's way easier to be a libertarian uh, and stay in kind of those David Brooks upper East Side New York City social circles. You know, if you if your priorities are just like limit government, maximize liberty, that's going to go a lot further. The currency of that is going to get you a lot further in elite urban social circles than you know taking arguments, uh, you know, that woke capital is going to oppose, right? About like uh, you know th- these radical arguments that biological women should compete against biological women in women's sports. Uh, you know, you can't have that any, anymore, right? Yeah. So there's that. And similarly, just like there's – for whatever reason, there's like a lot more institutional donor money for a lot of these kind of more libertarian causes. The Kochs obviously being kind of at the forefront of this. Um, the Kochs, I think, are on the wrong side of any number of issues. Criminal justice certainly uh, comes immediately to mind. Immigration, obviously. Um so, I don't know, I mean, like we need kind of more like authentically conservative big donors, and like I can think of like a few of the off the, off the top of my head who are doing amazing work, but um there's a paucity, there's just not that many honestly yeah.
0: well if you are an authentically conservative big donor, please come our way. Um, <laughs> we, we, we would be more than happy to, to take your money. Um, Josh, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Obviously, thank you for sitting on our board of advisors. Um, I think you were literally the fourth person we talked to about this project uh, way back in, I guess it would have been June of 2020. So thank you for everything that you do. Uh, where can people find your work? And uh, what is it that you've you've published recently and talked about that that you're particularly proud of that you want people to take a look at?
2: Uh, Well, thanks so much for having me on. So Twitter, it's Josh underscore Hammer. I've been pretty prolific recently, if I don't say so myself. I've written on like a bunch of different topics. Um, I had that City Journal article on Law and Order. I had a very lengthy essay at Tablet Magazine on uh, the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. I've written a lot on common good originalism, uh, most recently at the the Public Discourse website. Um, And be on the lookout. I've got a long essay on common good Originalism coming out uh, in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy this May. So I would just say, uh, you know, look out for that. Well, thank you. You got it.
0: This week, after we had our guest on, we wanted to talk about a couple of pieces on Amcanon that touch on some of the issues that we talked about with Josh. The one that I want to highlight is a piece by Andy McCarthy that was written at Commentary Magazine called The Progressive Prosecutor Project. Um, this piece is probably the seminal one that's been written on something that is truly concerning, which is the use of, of millions and, in some cases, Billions of dollars of of liberal money in order to influence district attorney and, and local court races in some of the biggest cities in America across the country. And what they have done is essentially create an atmosphere of lawlessness in certain cities in the United States. Josh had mentioned how I believe the district attorney of L.A. had essentially uh, indicated publicly that he wasn't going to prosecute any cases of petty larceny uh, under $250. Um, I think I brought up in response a similar case in a city in, in Texas. Um, there are district attorneys and prosecutors like this across the country uh, that have essentially decided to abrogate the laws that are on the books that they have a, a constitutional duty, frankly, to faithfully uphold in service of a far-left vision of criminal justice that is causing real pain in american cities and i think that now is the moment more than any other where conservatives need to forthrightly advocate a vision of justice that says that crime Hurts us all, and so Andy McCarthy really dives into the origins of this project and some of the consequences that have happened. I know that on legal and criminal issues, I I really look up to Andy a lot. You know, we disagree on certain things, but I've always been a big fan of the stuff that he writes on the stuff. It's it's crystal clear, it's easy to understand, and he really uh, has has a clever way of communicating it. So please check that out on Canon. Nick, what did you want to bring up?
1: Yeah, so I wanted to highlight a very contentious piece from last year. Uh, I remember that this ignited a lot of debate uh, from the right on, on Twitter. And it was kind of my first foray into like really talking about I mean, we could like loosely define it as constitutionalism, I guess, but like constitutional interpretation. Uh, It is a piece called Beyond Originalism by uh, Professor Adrian Vermeule, who, you know, Josh mentioned um, as having some disagreements with. Uh, Highly recommend you check out this piece on on AmCannon. Uh, You know, it's really fascinating to me. You know, Adrian follows me on, on on Twitter like like some of my like not more intelligent tweets and like dms me funny memes sometimes and it's like it's like crazy this this professor at harvard who is like trying to lead the charge for um you know the the common good movement as it relates to to the constitution um and how we interpret it like sending me memes in my dms like again like i said self-described village idiot um it's very fascinating but this piece was uh really kind of my first foray into trying to understand a lot of this stuff. I think, you know, Professor Vermeule is kind of the guy that basically, you know, kicked the Overton window. Uh, I, gu- I guess a couple ticks down the line and then tried to push the uh, conservative legal movement out of that window um so I highly recommend you read the piece you know they there I agree with probably like 95 percent of it um you know I, I I think we we can use the Constitution uh you know in a in a way to promote the common good and what's best for the American people um and there are, are you know some technical disagreements that that you know Josh and and professor Vermeule would would have over it but I thought it was a great piece it was it was kind of my first introduction into, you know, the, the legal movement for this stuff. Um, and highly recommend that you read it and that you tweet it and, uh, you know, start an argument with, the legal movement.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pl- pl- please get into fights with originalists over this. Um, yeah. No, I I think that the way you framed it, Nick, is exactly right, that it blew open the Overton window and it made it so that someone like Josh is now just the reasonable person that's saying yeah. maybe we should take uh, conservative originalism seriously. Uh, engaging with this debate is, is something that's extremely important. And even if you're not a lawyer, don't feel like you have no right to opine on this stuff. Uh, one of the most pernicious things that happens in the conservative movement is that the, the legal eagles uh, love to... To uh, you know, abrogate all the authority on that question to themselves and say that oh, you peasants without law degrees, you're not allowed to talk about this stuff. It's just not true. Again, if a village idiot like Nick can understand <laughs> this stuff, then you certainly can too. Yeah, um, yeah, I
1: I have to say it took me I had to read Adrian's piece like three times to understand it, and you can even tell like I'm struggling to explain it right now because it's extremely complex and it's it's a long piece. Like you. You should dedicate like a lunch break to reading it and fully understanding it. Um, But it's you should definitely try to learn these things because that's basically what what's happened in the conservative movement is we've, you know, kind of to use Sarab's fancy word, you know, abrogated this to, (laughs) you know, the legal movement. And we've just said, yeah, I'm sure they know what they're doing and. Look at what has happened with the conservative legal movement. It has not gone very well. well,
0: One of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about with Josh and probably for the best, he probably would have knocked over everything on this table if we did, was uh, a decision uh, that was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, called Bostock, in which he essentially read uh, transgender ideology into the Civil Rights Act um, or Title IX, actually, I think. And, um, you know that people like Adrian really have a a leg to stand on when they look at the fruits of originalism and, and see it lacking. So highly recommend you check it out. Highly recommend you check out everything you can on Amcanon. Again, we've painstakingly tried to assemble what we think are the essential pieces that have been written, sometimes as recently in the last couple of years, sometimes in the past couple hundred years that explain how to think about politics the way we do. Um, and you can check out that and, and everything else on AmericanMoment.org. Thank you for listening uh, to the podcast this week. We hope you've been enjoying it. Send in your feedback, and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.